Psalm 52, as was read just a moment ago, like so many psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 52 is a psalm of David, but more specifically, Psalm 52 is a maskil. If you're carrying an ESV or an NAS or an NIV translation of the Bible, you'll see the word maskil in the superscription. My New King James says a contemplation. This is a contemplation of David after a treacherous experience that he had as recorded in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. The superscription of Psalm 52, you have it open before you, it says this, when Doeg, the Edomite, went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Now that event summarized there in the superscription of Psalm 52 is an event that's most likely unfamiliar to us. Therefore, before we can appreciate this psalm, David's contemplation, Psalm 52, we need to go back to 1 Samuel 21 and 22 and learn about the background to the psalm. So keep your finger there in Psalm 52. Perhaps tuck your notes there in Psalm 52, but go with me back to 1 Samuel 21 and 22. It was in 1 Samuel 16 that David was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. It was in 1 Samuel 17 that David defeated Goliath. It was in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 that Saul turned against... Am I saying Daniel or am I saying David? David, Daniel... Let's not get those confused. In in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, Saul turned against David and forced David to flee, for Saul was determined to destroy him. And so for upwards of 10 years, David had to live as a fugitive, exiled from the holy city of Jerusalem, on the run from the wrath of King Saul. In fact, many of David's movements during that time are recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21 through 26, and they served, they gave gave rise to the writing of numerous psalms, Psalm 18, Psalm 34, Psalm 52, 54, 56, 57, and such, And, and so for the background of Psalm 52, we need to read 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse number one, follow as I read, now David came to Nob, to a little... Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. Stop there. This is a lie. David is telling Ahimelech a lie to protect his cover. And I directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. David was hungry from his journey. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is in effect common even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. There were ceremonial laws about who could eat the holy showbread in the tabernacle. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken 
from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So this is, if you will, day-old bread, right? This is the bread rack that we might be familiar with. And, and so perhaps th- this would be sufficient. Verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite. Remember, the Edomites are descendants of Esau, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. Again, a bit of a lie. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So in short, David is at Nob. And while they're at Nob looking for some bread, looking for a weapon in his, his fleeing from King Saul, he's spotted by Doeg, the Edomite, one who would prove to be a spy or an informant for King Saul. David departed with Goliath's sword and went to, of all places, the city of Gath. You remember Gath as the hometown of Goliath, the dead Philistine. So there in verses 10 through 15, if you're looking there, David feigned madness, pretending to be insane to escape the threat of the Philistines. So that in chapter 22, verse number one, David moved on to another place, Adullam, and he lived in a cave there. Then in chapter 22, verse three, he moved again to Moab. Then in chapter 22, verse five, David went to the forest of Hereth. Are you following me? First Samuel 22, verse number six, when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants, servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Now Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Saul's servants here in this case were his own people. And so Saul says to his servants from his own tribe, Will the son of Jesse, who's that? That's David. Give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. All of you have conspired against me and there is no one who reveals to me that my son, Jonathan, King Saul's son, has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, that is David. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Here we go, verse number nine. 1 Samuel 22, verse 9, then answered Doeg the Edomites, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob. I saw David, your nemesis. To Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Here's the narrative, here's the account, here's the report of what took place when Doeg spilled the beans, or Doeg let the cat out of the bag. On the one hand, Doeg didn't reveal anything untrue, however, Doeg was, was clearly trying to curry favor with the king, and as his subsequent action will prove, he was willing to do anything to accomplish that favor with the king. Of course, we know at this point, King Saul is a paranoid king who's on the warpath to destroy David. So what does King Saul do? 
We need to keep reading. Forgive me. Second, or 1 Samuel 22. Let's pick up now. We're in verse 11. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were Nob, and they all came to the king, and Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie and wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? who is the king's son-in-law. Now remember that King Saul promised one of his daughters to whoever could defeat Goliath. David defeated Goliath. Saul offered his oldest daughter. David declined, but married her, his younger daughter, Micah. So David is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house. David is honorable. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all of this, little or much. So Ahimelech is saying, I, I, I didn't understand what was happening. And the king said, verse 16, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when, when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Well, of course not. That would be scandalous. And so it's admirable for, for, for these servants of Saul to exercise some civil disobedience. We will not slaughter the priests of the Lord. Verse 18, and the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. You do it. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. That is a priest. 85 priests were killed. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Folks, this is a horrific massacre, a horrific account, complete devastation. And it's at this time, in reflecting upon this event, that David writes Psalm 52, his maskil or his contemplation. Turn back to Psalm 52. Let me go to the Lord in prayer. God in heaven, we have read extended portions of your holy word this evening. We've read of the horrific slaughter of priests and men and women in the city at the hand of Doeg. And Lord, we now turn to Psalm 52 to, to read of, of David's response to these things and how he waited upon you when he had been horribly wronged I pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond in the same way. Lord, as we've seen this evening for our brothers and sisters around the world, pastors and, and churches, as well as the unsaved who are suffering, we pray that you would, in your grace, preserve them and protect them. And Lord, draw them to yourself so that they might believe the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Psalm 52. 
David's contemplation after this horrible event, after Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Verse number one, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. In your notes, if you picked up a copy as you came through the foyer, the mighty man's evil in verses one through four, the mighty man's evil. And when writing Psalm 52, David was thinking of the evil report that Doag gave to Saul that led to the slaughter of 85 priests and so many others in the city of Nob. More specifically, David was thinking of the mighty man's boast in his evil, that subpoint letter A, boast in evil. It makes me mad not just that people do wickedness, but that they flaunt their wickedness, they boast in their wickedness, they parade their wickedness. I feel like that's the norm in our culture today. People aren't content to simply indulge in their sin behind closed doors. They must tell the world about it. In this case, David recognizes Doeg's boast in what he had done. And the irony is that while Doeg might boast, he was hardly a mighty man. That's what David calls him there in verse number one. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? There's a bit of sarcasm there because it's not like Doeg killed an army who resisted him. Doeg killed untrained and unarmed priests who were standing there in front of King Saul and all of his guards. The only weapon that the priests had to defend themselves was Goliath's sword that they had previously given to David. It was just a historic artifact. They were completely defenseless. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this. He says, a mighty man indeed to kill men who never touched a sword. He ought to have been ashamed of his cowardice. But yet David describes him as boasting. But that's exactly what the wicked do. They war against the innocent and they slaughter the defenseless. I think of the abortion industry. And then they boast and brag about it. And many times their evil isn't physical murder, but perhaps verbal murder. The gossip and the slander and the libel and the lies. In Psalm 73, Asaph wrote of the prosperity of the wicked. He said this, you know it well. Therefore their pride serves as their necklace Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. And so they are com committing these massacres and this slaughter with their, with their words. Remember what James wrote? James chapter three, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a fire, a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members so that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and of bird, of reptile, creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil. It's full of deadly poison. And so Doag, with his report of David, creates all of this wreckage. And of course, we know the source of, of Doag's words. Jesus taught, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Doag, from his heart, is communicating to Saul 
the circumstances of, of, of David's fleeing. And that reference out of the heart, I, I really think is just an explanation of the love of what's at the core of our being. Look at Psalm 52, verse number three. Speaking of Doag, David says, you love evil more than good. That's Doag's love for evil. Look at verse four. You love all devouring words. So the source of this mighty man's evil words is his heart. And for that matter, the source of every man's words is his heart. But it's a reference to our loves. That would be the love of evil. First is the boast in evil. Secondly is the love of evil. And perhaps you at times have speculated how it is or why it is that wicked people do the things that they do. Well, simply put, it's because they love evil. What compels people to do unnatural things, unhelpful things, gross things, ugly things to one another and to themselves? It's because they love evil, the love of evil. Now, let's play a little game here quickly with verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. You have your Bibles open. Psalm 52, 1 through 4. Let's play the game, one thing is not like the other. Or let's play the game, which of these do not belong? So you look at verses one through four and find one phrase that is not like the others. One phrase that might be out of place in these first few verses, different from the rest. I would contend that the second phrase of verse number one is unique among the phrases here in verses one through four Every other phrase in verses one through four, David is describing the character and the conduct of the wicked man. But the second phrase of verse number one, David is describing the character and the conduct of a good God. The second line of verse one, it qualifies David's contemplation here. The goodness of God endures continually. And notice the temporal indicators there. In contrast to the evil of the wicked, that the, what, what they're doing today, all around us today, God is good all the time, forever. So consequently, verse number five, God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. And so if verses one through four describe the mighty man's evil, then number two, verse number five, describes the good God's justice. The good God's justice. God will not always allow these destructive lies to rule the day. But rather, because his goodness is continual, it endures continually, he will exercise justice there in verse number five, the good God's justice. In verse um, five, there, there are three vivid images, I, I think, to describe God's justice upon the wicked. Uh, I'll take you away. He'll take you away, verse number five. Destroy you forever, take you away, pluck you out of your living place. Do you see these? Uproot you like a tree from the land. And this was David's contemplation as, as he's thinking upon wicked Doeg. He's thinking about what Doeg has said, what Doeg has done. But then he's thinking about the goodness of God continually forever. 
one who is going to meet justice, meet out justice upon the wicked. And folks, we need to be content with the same contemplation. We need to be content in knowing that it's God's prerogative to judge the wicked in due time, and He will. Many times, I, I, I watch the news or I read the news. I, I spend way too much time watching the news and reading the news. And, and folks, I lose my mind at the injustice that is occurring all the time. I lose my mind at the immorality that is paraded in our country, at the wrong that is perpetuated in our country. At other times, I think of the the sharp razor of another's tongue, one who is deceitful and destructive toward me or those I love, and I lose my mind again. I lose my mind a lot. It's just occurring to me. (laughs) And I wonder, why isn't God intervening? God, why won't you do something? Why won't you drop the hammer and crush the wicked? Why are you allowing these things to continue? Do something about this now. So what should I do? Number three, the righteous man's responses. There's the mighty man's evil, Doag, verses one through four. There's the good God's justice described in verse number five. Verse five serves as that hinge. And now the righteous man's responses. And when verse number five happens... At long last, verse 5 happens. Then we come to verse number 6. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a tree, a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in, your, in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. The righteous man's response is beginning in verse number six. I would offer you, letter A, fear God. When we see the judgment of God fall upon the wicked, we will fear God. Verse six, the righteous shall also see and fear. Now, we all have a general ref- reverence for God. We all have a general awe for, for God. However, when we see our good God's justice meted out, we will fear him in a new and a profound way. And furthermore, our fear of God will be accompanied by laughter. Do you see it there in verse number six? The righteous also shall see and fear, that's the fear of God, and shall laugh at him. Now, don't misunderstand this laughter as a response to something humorous. We all laugh at a funny joke or a a funny story. We don't laugh in the same way at sin. The laughter here is not the laughter of delight. It's the laughter of derision. It's the laughter of mocking and scorning or holding in contempt. Multiple times in the Old Testament scripture, we read that God laughs at the wicked in this very same way. We might understand this as one who gets the last laugh in a circumstance. When someone is said to have the last laugh, it means that they are vindicated in the end. And this laughter, this last laugh, can be understood by what the righteous man says now in verse number seven. Here is the man who did not make God his strength, 
but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Okay, so David here, let's keep Doeg in mind. David is thinking of Doeg. He's contemplating Doeg and the circumstance back in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And although the biblical account in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 doesn't tell us explicitly Could it be that Saul promised prosperity to whoever would inform him of David's whereabouts and whoever would slay the priests? A finder's fee, if you will. Whoever gives me information leading to the arrest of David, you know, Crime Stoppers will award you X amount of dollars. Could it be that there was some financial remuneration that was attached to the instruction of slaying the priests? Did Doag benefit financially for what he did? I think we can assume that to be the case. Did Doag get promised a position of, of high authority in Saul's regime? I think we can assume that to be the case as David is describing here in verse number seven. Charles Spurgeon writes, wealth and wickedness are dreadful companions When combined, they make a monster. When the devil is master of money bags, he is a devil indeed. And so here, David's contemplation is, he's suggesting that Doag um, was was compensated for what he had, had done there, I believe. But the insight in verse seven is, is so wise. Where does the righteous man get the response, this response, this wise insight? And and I would suggest it's from the fear of the Lord in verse number six, okay? So the the righteous man's response is to fear God. From the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So now I have the wisdom, I have the insight for verse number seven. Verse number eight. But I, David is speaking, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Letter B would be to trust God. We need to fear God. We need to trust God. In what way does David trust God in verse number eight? Well, David cites the mercy of God there in verse eight. We could spend some time thinking on the great mercy of God toward us. However, there is something about God's mercy that is often or maybe even always cited and that is the duration of God's mercy. You know what's special about God's mercy? The Bible tells us it endures forever and ever. Psalm 136, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good. That was Psalm 52 verse one. The goodness of God endures continually. Psalm 136, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy does what? It endures forever. In fact, Psalm 136 is an antiphonal psalm, which which means there is a reader and a hearer response in which the audience says over and over again, his mercy endures forever. And to illustrate the endurance of God's mercy toward him, David likens himself to an olive tree in the house of God. Bible commentator Derek Kidner then explains that the olive tree is one of the longest living trees. In fact, if you ever go to Jerusalem on a a Holy Land tour, in fact, Central Seminary, you're the first to know, is is hoping to host an Israel trip in January of 2025. So you have a a year and a half, right, to to save your nickels. 
Uh, January of 2025, uh, Doug Bookman is going to help us lead that trip if you'd like to go. But if you go on that trip, we go to Jerusalem, we go to the Mount of Olives, we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there are the olive trees. That's what I'm talking about, the olive trees. Some of those olive trees are a thousand years old. David's expectation for God's mercy is that God would preserve him long beyond the destruction of the wicked here in the presence of God. Verse number eight. I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. So the righteous man's response, fear God, trust God, praise God. Now letter C. Praise God, letter C from verse nine. I will praise you forever because you have done it. We always praise God for who he is and we praise God for what he's done, but in this case, praising God for doing it. Doing what? Punishing the wicked in verse number five because God is a just God. And praising God for doing it, doing what? Preserving the righteous like a green olive tree forever and ever Verse number eight. But also in this case, the praise of God is in anticipation of what he will do, not just what he has done. Have you ever done that, Lord? I praise you. I thank you. I praise you for your provision tomorrow. I thank you and I praise you for your, prote- your protection tomorrow. God, I thank you. I praise you for what you're going to accomplish in this country or around the world in the years to come. God, I thank you and I praise you for taking care of the injustice that is being done today, for taking care of that in your time, maybe at a later time. Lord, I thank you and I praise you. That's the response of the righteous, which then brings us to the latter part of verse number nine, and in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. That's letter D, wait on God. The goodness of God, there at the end of verse number nine, that theme was also in verse number one. The psalm is bracketed or bookended by the goodness of God. And when we've been wronged, we, we want to take matters into our own hands. And we want to defend ourselves and we want to get revenge against our enemy and we want to rise up and fix it. Remember, David here is a young man. At this point, he is a young warrior. Word on the street is that David was a great warrior, greater than King Saul. Saul had killed his thousands, but David had killed his ten thousands. David was in a place that he could have started a revolution and overthrown the king, but that's not what he did. He waited for God's time and God's way. Waiting on God when I've been wronged. There are a, a number of New Testament passages and texts that teach the same thing. Matthew 5, turn the other cheek, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Romans 12, verse 19, vengeance is God's business. Romans 12, 21 and 22, or, or 20 and 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I leave you with what Charles Spurgeon wrote. Men must not too much fluster us. 
Our strength is to sit still. Let the mighty ones boast. We will wait on the Lord. And if their haste brings them present honor like doag, promotion, enrichment, our patience will have its turn by and by and bring us the honor which excelleth. I think Psalm 52, David's contemplation here is a right response when one has been wronged. Waiting on God, I will wait on your name for it is good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this evening that you would help us to to be still, to wait. Lord, may we fear you, may we trust you, may we praise you, but may we wait upon you. Lord, we can't fix all that's wrong in this world. There are some with sharp razor tongues. There are some with sharp weapons that cut and destroy. Lord, they boast then in that wickedness. But Lord, we trust that you are a good God. You are good forever. And we will wait upon you to mete out the justice that is due them. And we will trust you, Lord, to preserve us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.